Okay, good evening. evening. So something very exciting is about to happen. We're starting the book of Psalms, which means that we're actually shifting into the third and final section of the Tanakh. Tanakh is the acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Torah, no better translation. People can translate it as the law. That's a terrible translation. Torah, as much as anybody who's ever opened the Torah knows that there's a whole lot more going on than laws in there. Laws are very important and central, but Torah means teaching with a capital T. Much better translation over there. Nevi'im, the books of the prophets, is what we've been doing in this survey from the very beginning since we met, at least in this capacity, until last week. And now we're up to the holy writings, or the Ketuvim. That is a great rabbinic way of saying miscellaneous. Because that's pretty much what the Ketuvim are. The Ketuvim is a whole hodgepodge of different biblical books, all inspired prophetically. But they're coming from such different places. The Psalms, which comes first in the way that we've ordered the Tanakh, is the only book in all of Tanakh which is from people to God. Prophecy is all about from God to people. right? That's the direction from the Torah. That's what Revelation is all about. Revelation is God starts the conversation, and then we join in. Psalms is the only book in Tanakh which is fundamentally people speaking to God. It is our first book of prayers. There are plenty of prayers in the Torah and in the books of the prophets, but they're not books of prayers. They're prayers that are in the context of narrative. This is the only one that you have from people to God. You have some books, like the book of Proverbs, which is coming up down the pike. We'll get to that in February after our break, which is a wise person talking to everybody else. It's person to people. God is, it's about God. It's about living a good religious life. But God isn't speaking and nobody's speaking to God in that book. It's really the wise sage speaking to everybody else. There are other books like Kohelet that likewise is a wise sage speaking to other people. You have some narratives, like the book of Esther, the book of Ruth. You have one prophetic book, Daniel, which somehow is in the book of Ketuvim, in the section of holy writings, rather than in the books of the prophets. We'll have to talk about why. When we get to him, ballpark, Pesach, you know, right before or right after Pesach, I think after. Figure it out. I'll look at the calendar. I even know the answer to that question somewhere, just not tonight. You have the book of Song of Songs, which stands on its own. It's a beautiful love poem, which we'll talk about its meaning when we get to that one as well. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, which are prophetic histories, which sound like the early books of the prophets. But somehow they're in the Ketuvim. So it's really a mixture of all kinds of different things. One of the funny things about the book of Psalms is that if you ask most people how many books of Psalms are there, they would answer... One. one. <laughs> There's one book of Psalms, and there are 150 Psalms in there, right? Yeah. But actually, if you just open up any Tanakh, including whichever one you own, there is not one book of Psalms. If you look at your book of Psalms, you will see that if you open up to Psalm 1, you will see book 1. What do you mean, book 1? How many books are there? Well, if you flip around enough, you will find out that there are five books of Psalms. There are five different collections which are set off in the ancient Masoretic tradition, and which in our printed Tanakhs continue to... We mark them. They're there. There will always have been five books of Psalms. Each. No, no, no. Total. The, the, the book that we call the book of Psalms is comprised of five books. Right? The first, just uh, if you want to write it down, or you can look it up for yourself. It's 1 to 41. Psalms 1 to 41 make up book 1. Let's see if I can remember all these things, right? For, put myself on the spot. 42 to 72 is book 2. 73 to 89 is book 3. 90 to 106 is book 4. And the rest of them, 107 to 150, book 5. Good. Did it. And I'm sure that I'm right. So that's all good. Those are the five books of Psalms. And again, in your printed books, you would see this. In ancient scrolls of Psalms, you would actually see, just like what you see in the Torah, 
spaces in between the books, just as there are between the five books that we call the Torah. Now, maybe it's not an accident that there are five books of Psalms. The sages of the Midrash already suggest this possibility, that there are five books of the Psalms to correspond to the five books of the Torah. And it's not just an accident that there are five collections that are welded together into a book, is that it was deliberately done so to mirror the Torah. The idea being, of course, the Torah is supreme revelation from God to people. And to correspond with that, you have five books of people to God. So the Midrash already recognized this pattern and thinks that it's part of the story, that it's not just, by the way, oh, how cute, five and five, let's make something up. It's plausible that it was originally created that way in order to mirror the five books of the Torah. We'll never know that for sure. But at the very least, these are ancient traditions that suggest that it goes back to that. And of course, this sets up the fact that, at least in our tradition, the two top people are Moshe, the greatest prophet, and David, the greatest prayer. They're set up as the opposite. They're not opposites. They're on the same team, but they're coming from different perspectives. Moshe is the supreme revelation receiver. Nobody is like Moshe. As we've spoken about time and again, all the other prophets are subsidiary to Moshe. Moshe is the supreme prophet. David is the supreme prayer. And in terms of just statistics, the names of people who appear most in Tanakh by far, those are the two whose names appear far and beyond, way beyond whoever's number three. I don't even know who's holding third place, but whoever it is, it's way, way below David and Moshe. David and Moshe are one and two in terms of people. God is the most. God is not a person. But the top two people by far, the most beloved and important people in the entire Tanakh are David and Moshe. Just one thing that we should know about it, because it's a survey course and we're doing only two weeks to cover the 150 songs, we're obviously not going to read them all inside. Uh, we're not going to read out almost any of them inside, but we will talk about some of the major themes that are going on in there. Here's just an interesting perception thing. If you ask most people who come to synagogue regularly, what's in the Psalms? Even if you pray them and know what the ones that you're saying mean, right? And you say them regularly. I think most people, even who come to synagogue regularly, will say they're primarily praises of God. And the reason for this is because 98% of the psalms that we do recite in our prayer liturgy are praises. It works out great, so that's why we think that. If you actually read the book cover to cover and pay attention to what's in there and read all of them, including the ones that we say seldom or never in our prayers, uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on in there also. A lot of requests, a lot of protests against God. There's all, a couple of historical surveys in there. There are different forms of psalms, some of which became the dominant forces in our liturgy, in our Siddur, and some of them which play almost no role at all, to the point where most of us don't even know they exist unless we take the trouble to learn the book of psalms. We'll talk about a couple of them briefly, but of course you'll have to learn the entire book in depth to, you know, to get the whole shmir. If you, if you really want to see a doozy of one, you could read Psalm 89. You could ask people who recite, you know, some people bless them, have the custom to recite the entire book of psalms every month. It's an incredible custom, and bless the people who do this kind of thing. It's a cycle, and you even have in your printed Tanakhs or printed Tehillim, you go to the Kotel, you will see, day one of 30, day two, day three, and you pick the day and you go for it. So that means you're reading it 12 times a year. But you could ask people who do that, do you know what Psalm 89 is about? Keeping in mind that they've read it at least 12 times this year, and 12 times perhaps last year also. Psalm 89 is a tremendous protest against God. 
really tremendous. You can read it on your own and find out just how tremendous it is. It's letting you know inside scoop. I just started teaching it today at Yeshiva in the context of one of my courses. But it's there, and I remember the first time I read it, I just couldn't believe it. It's, a, it's quite a protest. You can see it for yourselves. You know, after you go home tonight, you're gonna. You know, some people will flip through, find it. Psalm 89. It's there. It's been there for a very long time, and it's it's a remarkable, remarkable protest. But we never, oh boy, we never say that in our sidur. I guarantee it. I don't. I don't know everybody's sidur tradition, but I'm sure that it's in none of them. Okay, so that's my confidence with regard to that, that particular psalm. So in terms of the actual book, it's far more complex than the ones that we actually read in R.C. Dewar, at least on a regular basis. Now, the topic of tonight is just what is there? What, what is in the book of Psalms? I made you a chart over here that summarizes books one through three, book four and book five, right on the front of the source sheets. Everybody has source sheets, right? There are some in the back also, and I still have some up here. You will find that the opening book, the opening verse of each psalm is what we call in English a superscription or a title verse. You know, a psalm of David, a psalm of the children of Korah, a psalm of Asaph, and so on and so forth. So if you just have a statistic thing where you take the 150 psalms the way that we count them, and take all the first introductory title verses, and you try to figure out what names are you bound to see over here, you will find that a whopping 73 of those 150, that's pretty high, almost half, uh, have King David's name in the title verse. Yeah? Oh, by the way, as a... FYI, uh, the Christian Bible has uses those the superscription as verse one, which causes a different. No, we, we also we well, I mean we just follow their count, so we also do verse one. No, but I'm they call if you're going by citation. Right, we do, we, but but well, we just follow the Christian counting, so we do it too. Look in a printed any good Jew, JPS Jewish Publication Society, it's, it's going to be verse one there also because we follow the Christian system, like it or not. That's what we that's what we use. So. So King David's name is in 73 out of the 150. So he, he owns the place. His name is rightly the dominant force, and that's why most people on the street, if you ask them who wrote the book of Psalms, the leading, the leading vote would always be King David, and that's because his name is the dominant, dominant voice. Holding second place at a mere 12, so you see that King David really owns the, really owns the place, is Asaph. Asaph was somebody from the tribe of Levi who was a contemporary of David. He was a musician who also was very inspired and wrote, or his name is on 12 of these psalms. Holding third place, just one notch below Asaph, are the sons of Korach. Lamatzeach, Livnei Korach, Mizmor. There are 11 of those. Or the sons of Korach have it. When it says sons, it doesn't, you know, you know who Korach was, right? The great rebel of the desert. So, he wasn't so nice in fact, if you read the story, the primary narrative, it sounds like his children all got swallowed up when the earth opened up. It sounds like his family is done. But later on in the Torah, there's a little footnote that Korah's children did not die. The logistics of that are beyond anybody. But okay, children of Korah live on. And they had descendants. They were from the tribe of Levi. Those descendants were very righteous. That's so a good thing that they did not die. The prophet Shmuel, Samuel, is a descendant of Korah. Pretty cool. So it's worth it just for that. I'm glad. I'm very you know, just to have him come from Korach's line is pretty amazing. But also, some of them became the leading singers and musicians and composers in the temple liturgy. Okay, so that's the Korach family. They became one of the important guilds. 
After those three dominant forces, who were all contemporaries of David, you then have a few other names with a couple of them here and there. You have somebody named Yedutun. Nobody knows too much about him other than he also was from the tribe of Levi at the time of King David. You have a couple of people that really nobody knows much about, Haman and Etan. Don't know anything about them. But okay. What it all comes down to is that of these psalms that we have, nearly all of them are identified either with David or with contemporaries of David, or in the case of descendants of Korach, it could be at any time you want. The descendants just keep on coming. We don't know what era we're talking about over there. Of the 150 psalms the way that we count, there are 50, 5-0, that don't have anybody's name on the title verse, or there is no title verse at all. Like, hallelujah, da 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 Say them all the time. Nobody's name is there. We have no idea who the author is. The psalm doesn't care to tell us. Simply, hallelujah, let's go praise God. Out of the entire book of Psalms, this is an amazing statistic. I like amazing statistics, in case you haven't noticed. It goes back to my baseball background. But in the meantime, but it also comes in really handy biblically. Out of the whole 150 Psalms, the way that we count them up, there are only two where the title verse is dated to a time other than David's time. One is way before David, and one is way after. The one before, which we recite every single Shabbat, is... The 90th one. David is spot on. It's Moshe. If you look at source number one over here, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 90 is ascribed to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe lived centuries before David. This is the only psalm that is officially linked to somebody who is not from David's line. Meaning David's time, excuse me. David's time. Moshe is the only one who is before. And there's only one psalm that is ascribed to a time frame after David, explicitly after David, and that is in source number two. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as we thought of Zion. When is that referring to? This is the Babylonian exile. This is centuries after David. So some people have it as a tradition to recite this before Birkat Mazon on weekdays. And then you say, the happier version of the whole thing, on Shabbat and Yom Tov and all of those things. Different people have different customs with regard to that. But at the end of the day, this is the only psalm out of 150 that is explicitly dated in its title verse to sometime after David, in this case, centuries after David. So if you have all of this evidence, who wrote the book of Psalms? It sounds like it's a collection of people. So here's where it gets very interesting and complicated in terms of understanding what tradition is. And that's really, we're using this as an opportunity to discuss the nature of what Psalms are. And one of the ways to do that is to understand what tradition has to say about the book of Psalms. And as usual, if you know anything about tradition, we're going to argue about it a little bit. Right? right? It's usually what happens in tradition, and rightly so. Because the evidence is varied, and there's one tricky thing which everybody's conscious of. When it says... Mizmor le David. Translate that. A psalm of David. Fine. So what does that mean about, what's David's relationship to this psalm? Either he wrote it, or what else could Mizmor le David mean? An ode to David. Even when you have King David or anybody else's name in there, everybody is aware of the fact that le, that letter lamed over there as a prefix, can either mean a psalm of David, that David is the author but it could just as well mean that somebody else, whether a contemporary of David or somebody later, is writing an ode to David. And who wouldn't do that? If he's the supreme poet prayer, you can see any inspired later psalmist saying, I want to compose a prayer in honor of King David. 
the founder of this whole genre of, of prayer, or one of the masters of it at the very least. So our commentators are very well aware that since most of the title verses that have a psalm list something, or psalm either of or to somebody, really complicates things quite a bit. And that opens the door to all kinds of interesting possibilities. So who wrote the psalms? Source number three is the classic Talmudic passage on the subject. David wrote the book of Psalms, including in it the work of the elders, namely Adam, Malkitzedek, Abraham, Moshe, Haman, Yedutu, and Asaph, and the three sons of Korach. Now, this is classic Talmudic. I love it. It's great. How many, I rattled off things very quickly a little while ago, but how many Psalms have Adam's name at the top of it? The answer is none of them do. How many of them have Malkitzedek's name? Who was Malkitzedek? Malkitzedek was a priest at the time of Abraham. When Abraham rescued his nephew Lot from, from, well, he didn't rescue him from Sodom. I wish he had rescued him from Sodom. It would have been better. The king of Sodom had been defeated by some other coalition. And Abraham is the one who beat off the coalition and rescued Sodom, including Lot. So the king of Sodom never said thank you. Lot, incidentally, never said thank you. He was living in Sodom for just too long. The only person on the set who comes out and says thank you is this Malkitzedek fellow. Good for him. So you got to love him. And so Malkitzedek is here ascribed to writing some psalms. There's no psalm in, that has a psalm of Malkitzedek. There is one psalm, for the record, Psalm 110, where the term Malkitzedek appears in the body of the psalm. But it's referring to a righteous king of Israel. It's not referring to this guy. So there are no psalms in the book of psalms that are are explicitly ascribed or implicitly ascribed to Malkitzedek either. Okay, 0 for 2 so far. Abraham. Oh, how many psalms does, does it say? Psalm of Abraham. 0 for, wow, we're really... Uh, the Talmud thinks very differently from the way that a Pashtan, somebody who's looking at the plain sense of the text, thinks. If you're looking for the plain sense, at least go with the names that are there. Whereas the Talmud is thinking in a whole nother way. They're imagining that... As soon as there were people created in God's image, people were praying. That's why it has to start with Adam. It doesn't matter that there's not a single psalm that is ascribed to him. We have to assume that people immediately forged a relationship with God. Who better than Adam HaRishon? And Malkitetic, likewise, being a very righteous individual that he was, I'm sure he was praying. So hey, get him into the book of Psalms, even though there are no psalms that have his name on it. Abraham, again, who better? I'm sure he, he was a master prayer. So what if there are no psalms that have his name on it? They're certainly among the builders of psalms, as far as this Talmudic passage is concerned. Moses, is he in the psalms? Thank God, yes. <laughs> that one time that we saw. Okay, so here's the first one on this list of ten who really is there. Haman. Haman is there. He's on Psalm 88. You do too, and he's on three different psalms, 39, 66, and 77. Am I right about 66? I don't think I'm right about 66. 60-something. 62. 39, 62, 77. Okay. Asaf, he's there, and the three sons of Korach, they're there. This Talmudic passage, by the way, is taking the B'nai Korach, which I translated as descendants of Korach, which is how most Pashtanim understand it. They take it to be literally the three sons of Korah. Korah, the rebel, had three sons. What did so, you first say about that? 
B'nai Korach can just as well mean descendants of Korach. It doesn't have oh, to be, yeah. Sorry. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be the actual sons of him. And in fact, virtually no Pashtan thinks that it refers to the sons of Korach. They think it refers to the later people who are in King David's time and beyond. So then they say, well, you say that David wrote the Psalms, including the work of the ten elders. Why is not Eitan the Ezrachite also reckoned with? Hey, wait a second. What about Eitan? Eitan is on Psalm 89, the one Psalm I recommended that you read if you want to see a shocking Psalm. Eitan HaEzrachi is the man whose name is on that Psalm. So, hey, if you're saying that there's ten, there's eleven. What about Eitan? You forgot about him. Eitan the Ezrachite is Abraham. Oh, that solves that one. I didn't know that. I thought Etan HaEzrachi is an obscure figure that we don't know from anywhere else practically, and suddenly he became Abraham. The proof is that it is written in the Psalms, Etan the Ezrachite, because it is written that, and it is written elsewhere, who has raised up righteousness from the East. In Hebrew, it's Mi Heir Mi Mizrach. And this Talmud understands that the person that God stirred up from the East was Abraham. So they're translating it as, it's Avraham HaMizrachi, right with this one, equals Etan HaEzrachi. You understand that a Pashtan, this doesn't work for so many reasons, but at the Midrashic level it does. By the way, another name that appears on two of the Psalms, 72 and 127, is King Solomon. He's, all, he's not even mentioned in this passage. The assumption of this Talmudic passage is that King David wrote these two Psalms to Solomon, an ode to Solomon. He wrote them to his son. Right, even though it would have been nice to say King Solomon is in the Psalms, right? His name is there. It's in two different Psalms. No, this Psalmic passage sets up the store, and the way that what matters is not the names. What matters is that King David was the last hand to touch the Book of Psalms. That's what matters for our purposes. He wasn't the only hand. It includes the work of ten other people, according to this passage. But King David was the last hand to touch the book of Psalms. Meaning by the time King David died, the book of Psalms was done. Yeah, Charlie? Yes, yeah, so wait a minute. What about, what about source number two? Here's the only, by the way, again, it is the only one whose introductory verse explicitly says, Hi, I'm after King David. I'm many centuries after King David. So what does this passage have to say? Correct. This passage would have to insist that King David prophesied the Babylonian exile, meaning he wrote the psalm that was going to pertain to a later period, but he, but he wrote it. That's what this Talmudic passage is assuming. In other words, the only way that a person living at that time could write it, it would have to be somebody long after King David. Right? King David did not live into the Babylonian exile at all. So that's the assumption of this Talmudic passage. What Charlie is asking is actually the central question that's going to ride with us for the duration of this evening. All right, so that's source number three, and that's the classic Talmudic passage of who wrote the Psalms. King David was the last hand, but certainly not the only hand. Okay, so source number four, Midrash Song of Songs Rabbah. It's a Midrashic collection you know, that was put together that pertains to the Song of Songs, but needless to say, it has many, much other material as well. Ten men composed the Book of Psalms. Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, and Solomon. These are five. Any discrepancies with the previous source so far? Solomon, Solomon is in. Okay. Malkitzedek has fallen out. Well, well, let's see who comes up next. You have to see, that's five so far. Let's read the others. With regard to these five, there is no difference of opinion. Who are the other five? Rav and Rav Yochanan gave different answers. Rav said, Asaf, 
Haman and Yedutun, and the three sons of Korach, and Ezra. In other words, Asaph is in, Haman is in, Yedutun is in. The three sons of Korach to him counts as one. In the Talmud, three sons of Korach, were th- that count as three, when you're trying to get to the number ten. Here, three sons of Korach are a unit, which is a perfectly reasonable thing. And Ezra, when did Ezra live? He lived after the Babylonian exile, meaning, among other things, he or somebody before him could have written by the rivers of Babylon. This source doesn't require that King David prophesied the future. Because this source is saying that it goes back to Adam and it goes all the way to Ezra, meaning according to this source, Psalms were written as long as there was a biblical period. From the time of Adam HaRishon, from Adam, from Adam, all the way until the closing of the Bible, people were busy writing Psalms. It's a very different position from the, from the Talmudic source. The Talmudic source is saying King David is the last hand, not the only hand, but the last hand. According to this source, the doors are open for further psalmage until Ezra, until the closing. He's one of the last characters of the whole Bible. The last book chronologically of the Bible is Ezra and Nehemiah. And those two characters are the last, they're really the closers of the biblical period. Rabbi Yochanan said, just to finish up the source, Asaf, Haman, and Yedutun are only one. Add to them three sons of Korach and Ezra. So they're nitpicking over how to make, who, who gets to be a unit. But at the end of the day, this source takes for granted that King Solomon is the author of the Solomon Psalms, which is a trivial debate with the earlier source. What matters more is that Ezra is on the list. And that affects when the book of Psalms was closed. Was it closed at the time of King David, or was it closed in the time of the closing of the Bible? Okay, so that's the second rabbinic opinion. Here's the third rabbinic opinion, source five. Rabbi Meir used to say, all the praises which are stated in the book of Psalms, David uttered all of them. Okay, that means that not only is David the last hand, he is the only hand in the book of Psalms. For it is said, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Read not kalu, meaning ended, but kol elu, all these. It's an amazing drasha. The verse that he's using to prove his point is where there's a verse at the end of Psalm 72, which is the end of book two of the book of, of, of the five books of Psalms. Which says, the end, these are the end of David's Psalms. Which means there are other Psalms in here that are not David's. Right? And then Rabbi Meir takes that and turns it around and says, it doesn't mean the end, it means all of them are. Up to 72. No, 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 all period. All 150. It's an amazing turnaround for Rabbi Meir, but okay, Chazal do this kind of thing. It's what's called a drasha. And this drasha gives us that King David is not only the last hand in the book, he is the only hand in the book. He wrote all 150. Which means, by the way, when it says a psalm of Asaf, what does that mean? It's Correct. King David wrote it for the Leviim, for the, for the person Levi and his guild to perform in the temple. And a psalm for the sons of Korach. Well, once again, it means that David wrote it and he's giving it over to them to perform and play in the temple and so on and so forth. But King David is the author of all 150. Even, by the way, if you want to really stretch your limits here, what does it mean, a psalm of Moshe? How could David write something for him? Well, it's not for him to perform anymore, because that Moshe was great, but he passed away centuries before. So what could that mean? It could still be an ode to Moshe. Right? In other words, you don't lose anything here. Once you insist that David wrote all of them, 
Okay, so he wrote all of them. And any name that appears that isn't David, no problem. David wrote it either for them to sing or in honor of them. And how about by the rivers of Babylon? It still has to be a prophecy. In other words, there you would have to say that King David knew that one day there would be an exile. And so he predicted, he prophesied that there would be an exile, and he wrote this prayer for that period. Okay. So that's a third Midrashic opinion. And then you have a fourth Midrashic opinion, which actually is non-existent. I like non-existent opinions. They're really interesting. Ibn Ezra, Rav Avraham Ibn Ezra, in one of his introductions to the books of Psalms, he raises the question and kind of shrugs at it. Who composed this book? There is no need to answer, seeing that our sages have said that the men of the great assembly composed it. That is sufficient for us. That's great, except we just saw the sources that we saw. And nobody here says that the men of the great assembly wrote it. There's no known midrash that says what Ibn Ezra is quoting as a matter of fact. Yeah? They could have meant that the final editors of it instead of them writing it. So they collected all the songs from David and said, these are the essential ones. No, what you're saying is incredibly plausible, but it sounds like he's quoting a source. He's not surmising, this is what I think. He's saying, the sages say, that may, that works for me, I'm moving on now. David, what were you going to say? Correct. It's an excellently plausible view, and in fact, that's probably what happened. However, there's no Talmudic source that says what he's saying. Oh, the sages say that's a non-existent source. So, what, you know, what they do, what they do say is that you know King David wrote it with other people involved, but it never says the men of the great assembly wrote the Book of Psalms. Yeah. Okay. To Ibn Ezra. It could be, but again, it really sounds like he's quoting a source, meaning he's like, this is a well-known source, it makes perfect sense to me, Why? and therefore I don't need to quibble with it. Let's just move on now to the next thing. So, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting, and by the way, of all the sources, this non-existent one makes the most sense. <laughs> right? It seems to fit the evidence very, very nicely. It's a way of saying, of course there were earlier authors, but as long as the Bible was open, people continued to compose psalms. Right? And so down to the men of the Great Assembly, who are formerly the end of the biblical compilation period. They would include the last of the prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on. So they would have been the final hands in the book. Now, where Ibn Ezra got this one from is anybody's guess. Professor Uriel Simon guesses very plausibly that poor Ibn Ezra, if you know anything about his life, it was horrible. He was one of the most brilliant commentators who ever lived, but he had a really tough life. He was a refugee. He got ill all the time. He has a really good poem. He was a great poet. He wrote a great poem about playing chess, which, you know, it's really, really cool hearing the the dialogue going on there. It's one of my favorites of his. But another one is basically it's kind of, you know, if I were a gardener, everything would fail. And if I were this, everything would fail. And if I were a merchant, I would go bankrupt. And if anybody joined me, they would go bankrupt too. It's the most depressing thing you've ever read in your life. And he's just describing basically what his experiences are like. He's having an absolutely horrible time. The reason why he wrote his commentary on the Torah, he tells you about this in his introduction. So at one point he got deathly ill, poor fellow. And he made a vow to God. He said, God, I'll make you a deal. If you get me better, I'll write a commentary on the Torah. And thank God he got better. So he wrote one of the best commentaries ever written on the Torah. So I don't want to say that I'm happy that he got sick, because that's just not nice. But at least it was an incredibly positive effect to his having gotten sick. Had he never gotten sick, he may never have written this. 
weird. But in the meantime, poor Ibn Ezra had a horrible, miserable life. One of the things that he made him miserable is that he was running from country to country. And it is plausible that he was shooting this commentary from the hip. You know, so he wasn't in front of a library. He was busy running out of some country and going off to another one. He was writing as he went. So it's plausible that he simply made a mistake. He was relying on his memory and remembered wrong. And he was remembering other parts of that Talmudic passage in source number three that ascribe other books to the men of the Great Assembly, but not specifically this one at all. That's a very plausible reason. It actually just reflects the sadness of Ibn Ezra's life. But in the meantime, the view that he considers very likely actually makes a lot of sense in terms of what probably happened, yeah? Could he be referring to source four? <laughs> it's in sync with... It's in sync with source four. Very good. But he's, but he, the source that he's quoting sounds like the Talmud about other biblical books. Okay. It just sounds like he's misquoting the Talmud. But it's in sync. So to summarize rabbinic tradition here, some view King David as the last hand of the book. Some view King David as the only hand in the book. And some view King David as an important hand in the book, but the saga went on long past him all the way to the end of the biblical period. So far, so good. Now, if you ask people on the street, though, you know, you should try this in, in, in synagogue on Shabbat, to start polling people. Tradition, just say, traditionally, who wrote the Psalms? What are they going to tell you? So Rabbi Meir's view in source number five really won in the popular mindset. Despite the fact that prominent rabbinic passages, including the most important authorship source in the entire Talmud, source 3, says that King David did not write all of them. doesn't matter. King David has completely won the popular mindset in terms of who wrote the Psalms. So much so that we have a prayer that we call the Baruch She'amar. We say this every morning. And what do we say in it? Ushirei David Abdecha Nahalalcha or Nahalalach, depending on who you are, with the Psalms of David we shall praise you. And it's referring to the Psalms that are coming up. Most of the Psalms that are coming up do not even have King David's name on it. Some of them do, but most of them do not. It doesn't matter. It's the Psalms of David. Right? In our prayers, we build in that, that assumption. In many Midrashim, King David's name is everywhere when it comes to the Psalms. Whether or not David's name appears at the beginning of the Psalm, doesn't matter. David spoke and said, da, 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 da. David has really in the popular mindset, in the rabbinic mind and in our prayers, completely taken over the whole thing, which is not a terrible thing. King David's okay. <clears throat> but the biblical evidence itself doesn't say that at all. And the rabbinic evidence doesn't say that at all. In the 11th century, some, well, before we get to the 11th, let's talk about the 10th just for a second. I have to tell you the most incredible thing, I really believe it's one of the most incredible things ever said in the history of biblical inter- traditional biblical interpretation. And for me to give such a dramatic build-up to that, I really better mean it, or else it's going to be such a letdown. And that comment was said by Rav Sadia Gaon, one of the leading rabbis of the whole 10th century. He was really a phenomenal, phenomenal commentator. He lived in Babylonia. He was part of the great Geonim, who were the heads of the yeshivot that used to be run by the Talmudic rabbis back when the Talmudic rabbis were alive in an earlier age. Rav Sadia Gaon, in his introduction to the Psalms, says one of the most incredible things you, can be- you can't even believe it. He says... You're, you're going to think I'm making this up. That actually the Psalms are not prayers at all. King David wrote all of them, and they're prophecies that look like prayers. Which is shocking, because everybody before him thought that they were prayers. You think that they're prayers. I think that they're prayers. We pray them. 
They sound like prayers, they look like prayers, they feel like prayers. Nobody in a million years, other than Rafsadegaon, ever would have dreamed that they were not prayers. If you want to say that King David wrote all of them, okay, that's already on the books. But he's saying King David wrote all of them and that they're all prophecies in the form of prayers, which is truly shocking. And of course, all later rabbinic commentary rejected that with both hands because they're prayers, right? It's not, it's not like, oh, maybe that could be. Uriel Simon explains in his great book on, on, on these commentaries, really an excellent book. It's called Four Views of the Psalms or something, Four Something on the Psalms. But anyway, Uriel Simon argues that Rasadi Gaon didn't say that because he necessarily drew that from the evidence. He was doing this to attack the Karaites. The Karaites were a sectarian group that were very powerful in Rasadi Gaon's t- time. Now they're not. They, they lost the battle. But back then they were fighting good and hard. And the leading rabbis of that age had to fight an existential battle against these Karaites. The Karaites denied all rabbinic authority. They said the sages of the Talmud are wrong, they're reformers, we reject all of their teachings, and we focus on the Bible itself. The word Karaite comes from Mikra, it means we're Bible people, but not rabbinic people. And so the rabbinites, meaning the, what we would call Judaism, rejected them, and boy oh boy did they duke it out. The Karaites leveled a whole series of challenges at the rabbinites, meaning what we would call the traditional Jews, and my all-time favorite challenge is what has to do with the Book of Psalms. Ready for this? It's a cool challenge. I like this one. At least I have a good question in the mix. The question was, you rabbinites have a lot of chutzpah. That wasn't the question part. They just like to throw stuff like that in. All right? The Psalms are prayers, right? And of course, all the rabbis said, yeah, of course they're prayers. And you would agree that they're divinely inspired prayers, right? Well, of course, they're in our Bible. These are sacred prayers. We recite them with great reverence. And then the Karaites with that little glint in their eye, those troublemakers. They say, well, so who in the world do the sages think they are to push the Psalms off to the margins of prayer and to write the Amidah as the most important prayer? Who do they think they are? How dare they? You agree, and the sages agree, that the Psalms are divinely inspired prayers. And you think that you're better than that? That you're going to say that the Amidah, what we call the Shmona Israel, the Amidah, that's the most important prayer, and by far. Anybody would say that. Any rabbinic Jew would say the Amidah is the center of the prayer, and the Psalms are marginal. They're there, they're all over the place. But they, are, they do not hold the same importance as the Amidah. So what's up with the rabbis, asked the Karaites. Good question. I like, I like this kind of stuff. Yeah, Susan? Would you say they were poems? I mean, I don't understand the Hebrew fluently, but I was wondering if you really understood... Really well, would they be structured and sound like poetry? They are poetry. You're absolutely right. They're excellent poetry to boot. But they're prayers using poetic form. They're not done as love poems or a poem about chess or things like that. They're poems praying to God. They're using poetic forms by, yes, big time. People who understand ancient poetry can really help unlock the meaning in a lot of verses, because they spend the time understanding the structure of verses and what you know the ironies and the parallelisms and all that good stuff. Very important. But they're prayers. So Rav Sadia go on. Sorry, Beverly. Just a quick question. I'm just wondering if, um, if any archaeological, anything archaeological has come up in terms of this book. In other words, given that it could, be, it could have been written by so many different people over so many years, has anything... Oh, we don't have copies that are that old. You know, what would have been cool is to see a complete book of Psalms written in the time of King David and to see what it looks like. 
or the individual psalms. Right, so we don't have anything. I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have some psalms, but that's still way after they all were in existence, according to everybody. I'm saying the Dead Sea Scrolls. You, but, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were long after the biblical period. So by then, all psalms were in play. So you, you don't have any scroll or text that predates the end of the biblical period. That's when it would start to get juicy. So if they ever find that kind of stuff, really cool. Yeah? So, uh, this a question. Did Lot Psalms say that the prophecies of the Amidah would, would be the explanation why that's the center? That's what, that's what, they, that's what Rav Sadiagon did. Rav Sadiagon said, oh, the Psalms aren't prayers at all. They're prophecies, so we needed prayers. So that's why the sages had to write the Amidah. It was a polemical answer to a polemical problem. The problem, of course, is if that's the best he could do, that means that the Karaite question is a good question. In other words, the, he didn't give a good answer. He's trying to say that the prophecies, excuse me, the Psalms are prophecies, but they're not. They're prayers. And the sages still did that. The sages still moved the Psalms over to the margins and wrote the Amidah as the central prayer. If you want a basic answer for why that had to be, if you have ever read the Psalms, they're hard. <laughs> and they're usually not one theme each. The sages wrote the Amidah because they needed any Hebrew speaker to be able to have thematically organized prayers in simple Hebrew that anybody who knows Hebrew can understand, topic by topic by topic. The Psalms don't work like that at all. There's no way you could assemble an Amidah out of the Psalms. You could get inspiration from the Psalms. So that's very different from using the Psalms as the central prayer. They had to compose the Amidah. There probably are other reasons as well, but that's that's just a very basic and important reason why that happened. So that's rough. So let, let, let me... Hmm? Sure, we recite Psalms all the time, but it's marginal to the Amidah. The Amidah is the most important prayer. No question about that. So, But it had, they had to write the Amidah because they needed a prayer that covered the most important themes of prayer in a way that people could understand it. If you read the Psalms, good luck. Some of them are very understandable. The Hallel is pretty good in that regard. But some Psalms are really tough. And, and some Psalms to this day, nobody really knows what they're about. Okay. Well, Rav Sadiagon's view was rejected because it's a polemical answer. The Psalms are prayers, so don't worry, you'll go home tonight feeling what you always thought was true. You're right on track. Of course they're prayers. So along came one of the commentators. Here's just another, I like, I like when you get to survey. You know, to me, all of Parshanut, the history of interpretation, they're like stars in the sky to me. What I, I, I'm mesmerized by stars. As a New Yorker, of course, I think of airplanes as stars, and I'm sure some of you would agree with me. But if you ever see a real starry night, so you can appreciate once you learn about light years and stuff, right? You see all these stars now in real time, and they look like they're all there now. But of course, what you're seeing is 10 years ago for that guy and 100 years ago for that guy. You're seeing different times, even though you're seeing it in your real time. That's so cool, right? I love that. That's what happens when you learn the history of Parshanu. When you learn the history of interpretation, so you know, okay, this one's 10th century, this one's 11th century, this one's 12th century, this one's 19th century, this one's now, but they're all with you together. It's an amazing thing. You're looking at a starry night, but you understand that they're coming from, you know, from different places and they help you understand the Psalms in that way. It's really awesome. So in the 11th century, there lived a commentator in Spain, what became Spain, in Saragossa, but... And he was so good, this is a cool feature about him, that Rashi and Ibn Ezra thought the world of him and quote him all the time. Rambam thought he, here's a compliment for you, called him one of the most intelligent commentators. That's high praise coming from Rambam, because he doesn't say that about everybody. And most people have never heard of this man. So I'll tell you his name, and you can see, huh? His name is Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila lived in 11th century Saragossa. 
And Rashi and Ibn Ezra quote him all the time. Rashi quotes him as Rav Moshe HaKohen, not Rav Moshe HaDarshan. There's another Rav Moshe who he quotes also. There's Rav Moshe HaKohen. Rashi quotes him frequently, and Ibn Ezra quotes, quotes him as Rav Moshe. His name was Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila. And the reason why his commentary has basically been forgotten, even though our greatest commentaries use him, is because our greatest commentaries were greater than he. Rashi and Ibn Ezra were just so much greater that they absorbed his good teachings, and they just took over the playing field. So when people learn now, they go to Rashi and Ibn Ezra, and whenever Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila had something good to say, you hear what he had to say anyway. So his commentary became completely obsolete to the point where most very learned Jews have no idea who this Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila is, even though they read his words when they read Rashi and Ibn Ezra. So cool. Interesting how history plays games with us like that. But anyway, Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila is quoted very heavily by Ibn Ezra. And he took the opposite stand of Rav Sajikaon. He says, of course I believe in prophecy, but that's what the books of the prophets are. The books of Psalms are not prophetic. They're prayers. They're inspired prayers. None of them are predicting future events. That's not what the Psalms are. Prophecies do that. Prophet Isaiah does that a lot. Prophet Ezekiel does that a lot. All the prophets do that. We've been studying them for over a year together. We see it all the time. Psalms are prayers, either written by people who are currently in a state of distress or gratitude or whatever they're praying about, or a psalmist is writing a prayer for somebody who will one day get ill, because people get ill. So you need to have prayers for them. Right? You need to have prayers for people, please save me from my illness. We need to have prayers, thank you God for saving me from my illness. We all need these prayers on the books. So psalms could be written by a psalmist who's in a situation, or it could be written by a psalmist who knows people have situations. And that's all that they are. 150 out of 150, none of them are prophetic in the sense of foretelling any future events. So if it says, by the rivers of Babylon... That means that somebody who was sitting at the rivers of Babylon wrote that, period. King David is not prophesying an event 500 years off in the future. That's not what Psalms are. Psalms are prayers written by people in situations or thinking about situations. Let me just run with this for a little while. So I've got to make sure to do what I need to do. He says, his rule, Rav Moshe says that if David's name is on the superscription, on the introductory verse, then King David could have written it. But it also could be an ode to David. But if it doesn't have David's name on it, then it wasn't written by David. Because if it was written by David, guess what? They know how to say that. So that's his rule. If it says David, then it might be written by him. It might be an ode to him. But if it doesn't say David's name, then for sure it is not. So he says the best way to gauge who wrote a psalm is to figure out from the contents, not from the introductory verse. If you see something about the destruction of the temple, okay, that's when it was written, at the time of the destruction of the temple. If you see something about this or that, whoa, you try to ascertain what that is, and that's it. So he says that there are prayers, they're never prophetic, they're inspired prayers. And then Ibn Ezra comes in, and as usual, just takes over the playing field, that's what he does. Ibn Ezra quotes all of these things, and he takes a more cautious view, because he was a very cautious scholar. Ibn Ezra's view in the 12th century was, Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila always could be right, but how does he know that he's always right? How do you know that some of them are not prophetic? How do you know that a psalm that begins hallelujah, how do you know that King David didn't write it? Maybe he didn't, but how do you know? So he just takes a cautious stance, which is, Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila may be right 100% of the time, but he may not be right 100% of the time. 
That's a, that's, that's a fair view, right? How does he know with such certainty that none of them are prophetic? Maybe some of them are. Maybe none of them are, yeah, Elias. And then the commentators address the question of the difference in the style of the language, because some of the, some of the tale, you can break your teeth trying to say it, and others are pure, simple Hebrew. Your point is well taken. I feel the same way, and I've broken many a tooth <laughs> trying, to, trying to figure out some of these things as well. Some of them are, are so hard. When I teach psalms, I specifically I, I announce at the beginning, there are certain psalms I have no clue what they mean, so I'm not going to waste everybody's time. I, I get up there and just say, struggle with this. Here's 17 different views. I don't know who's right because I don't know what the words mean. The end. Right. So the question is always, from a hypothetical standpoint, was it as obscure to ancient readers as it is to us? There's no question that some of these are obscure to us. The greatest scholars have no clue what some of them mean. And they just tell you that. They say, this is really tough. The question is, when they were written originally in an ancient context, it could be that ancient people understood better what they were trying to do. Could be. Certainly one thing that I can tell you with certainty, there are all these musical instruments and rhythms and musical terms in the Psalms. None of us have any clue what they mean because we don't play in the temple choir. But the people who played in the temple choir and the conductor, they knew what every last one of those words meant. The guy who had to play the Sheminit, whatever it is, he had taken lessons for years, right? From the time he was a little kid so that he could play in the temple one day. He knew what a Sheminit was and he knew exactly how to play that thing. But we have no clue what it is. Maybe it had eight strings, okay. It sounds, and some people speculate that based on, the, based on the... So Elias, your point is very well taken. Some are smooth as silk and you and I could figure them out without, even a, without much translation even. And then there are others that are ugh, really rough. Uh, so I don't know why that is so. But scholars are conscious of the fact that some are very smooth and some are not. And I don't know if that says anything about authorship. It could be that some were composed for many people to say, and some were more elite that somehow got in there anyway. Like regular poetry, right? You and I, you know, you could take poetry classes. Some, I can understand them, and some you really need a trained eye to figure out what's going on, even on the basic level. So I think that's true with the Psalms also. So Ibn Ezra takes this very hedged view that Ibn Jikatila always could be right, but doesn't have to be right, so why insist on all of these things? And within classical commentary, that became the dominant view up until the 19th century. But despite the fact that that was the dominant view of classical commentary, if you asked anybody on the street who wrote the Psalms, they'd all say King David. They were simply oblivious to the scholars who were busy debating these finer points. And as far as the popular conception was, King David wrote the Psalms, period. And then in the 19th century, we had a crisis, because so many crises happened in the 19th century. Certainly in biblical interpretation and tradition in general, all kinds of things were going down. All of a sudden, scholars started saying... Dear believing Jews and Christians, they were really Christians addressing other Christians, but we Jews got involved anyway. How in the world can you believe that King David wrote all the Psalms when you have a Psalm that says, by the rivers of Babylon? Right? Or even these other names, like Asaph and the sons of Korah. You have all kinds of names in there that aren't David. So even if they were contemporaneous with David, so what? There are other people. So how in the world can you say King David wrote all of them? And then poor traditionalists, Jews and Christians, had to go, uh, 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 either tradition, Tevya style, or they would have to insist on prophecy and say, oh, King David prophesied the rivers of Babylon, don't worry. Or they're like, hey, these guys have a point. And they started to lose their faith. 
I hate when these things happen, right? They get involved in, in bad scholarship. Bad scholarship has taken away the faith of many people. It's a shame. Good scholarship would fix a lot of problems. But in the meantime, that's what happened. And it became a huge moment of crisis. And once Jews got involved, they had the same problem that Christians had, which is, hey, what they're teaching us in Sunday school doesn't match what we see with our own eyes. That King David did not write all of the Psalms. And they didn't know all of the sources that you and I are looking at. They simply were unaware of them. So they thought, okay, they told me King David wrote them. I'm looking with my own eyes. King David obviously did not write all of them, even if he did write some of them. So tradition is wrong, and that's and many people just took a walk. So in came Malbim, one of the great 19th century rabbinic commentators. And Malbim blew his stack. And it's not in the source sheets, because it's, it's a very long stack-blowing situation. He says, what's wrong with everybody? Tradition never insisted that King David wrote all of the Psalms at all. What are you talking about? Look at the sources. He said, there's absolutely no religious obligation to say that King David wrote them all. I'm sure he wrote some of them, but if some of them were written at the time of the destruction of the temple, that's fine. There's nothing in the text or in tradition that says otherwise. In other words, the sources that we've seen were obvious to somebody like Malbim, and he couldn't believe it that traditionalists and non-traditionalists alike were just saying what, they were all saying what they thought tradition said, which is that King David wrote all of them. And so then the traditionalists clung to that tradition, and the non-traditionalists broke from tradition because that can't be right. Look at the evidence. Malvin says you're misrepresenting what tradition is. And so he got very, very rightly very upset about the whole thing. And he says that these are all inspired prayers, but they weren't all necessarily written either by David or at the time of David. Then he says in a footnote there, you know, if you want, I'll tell you this. He, he raised another problem with by the rivers of Babylon. He said, in particular, imagine just for a second, let's say King David got prophecy and wrote this psalm, right? By the rivers of Babylon, we're crying. How can we sing in this, you know, outside of Israel? We will never forget you, O Jerusalem. Well, it's a beautiful psalm. It's very moving. Let's say, for argument's sake, says Malbim, that King David got prophecy and wrote the psalm. And he put it in the book of Psalms. And then King Solomon, David's son, opens up his book of Psalms right over there. And he finds this psalm. Like, huh? What are you talking about? We're not in Babylonia. We're not in the exile. And not only that, he asks a very very clever question. He says, all right, we all know the book of Jeremiah because we've done it together. What's Jeremiah's whole platform? Dear Jewish people, the temple is in jeopardy. But if we repent right now, we won't be exiled. We'll save Jerusalem. We'll save the temple. So let's say people would have actually listened. And let's say they would have repented, and let's say there would have been no destruction. But the Psalms have this thing, by the rivers of Babylon, we're in exile already. How could you publish a psalm foretelling with guaranteed certainty that there's going to be this exile? Maybe there won't be an exile. Maybe people will listen to Jeremiah. You're taking away their free will. 500 years before anything. So Malbim rejects that possibility. But then in a footnote he says... If you want to say that King David wrote it in prophecy, I'll give you a way to do it. So if this makes you feel better, good. Maybe King David got a prophecy and he wrote this psalm, but he did not publish it in the book of Psalms. He put it in an envelope and said, do not open until exile. <laughs> and they passed it on through a secret circle of disciples for centuries until the exile. And then they opened up the envelope and then they added it to the book of Psalms. Meaning it never was in the book of Psalms until it was relevant and until it made sense and until there was an exile. Now, obviously, uh, that's a 
I can't tell you that, that this did not happen. However, it's that's probably not what happened. Right? In other words, Rav Moshe Ibn Jikatila is overwhelmingly likely that, of course, the psalm was written at the time of the exile. But here's the amazing thing. After Malbim Blue is sacked in the 19th century, people continue to ignore him, and everybody continued to say, tradition believes that King David wrote the whole thing. This myth has lived into the 20th and even 21st centuries. And even great scholars, really great people who I admire immensely, continue to make the same mistake. Louis Jacobs, if you remember him, I never met him, great scholar of the middle of the 20th century in England who could have been the chief rabbi of England were it not for his beliefs in the authorship of the Torah. And so he, they, it became the Louis Jacobs affair, and before you know it, he wasn't the chief rabbi. Okay, so But be that as it may, he was a phenomenal scholar. And in his various writings, I have a whole shelf of books of his. I mean, this man knew a lot of stuff. He is so interesting to read. Plus, he sounds like he's British, and I like people who sound like they're British. And so... Louis Jacobs takes for granted. It's like, how could you trust tradition when tradition says that King David wrote the Psalms and yet, look, by the rivers of Babylon, he uses this particular example. I'm like, Louis Jacobs, come on, you know better. You know way more sources than I can ever hope to know. You must know some of the things that I'm quoting on this two-page source sheet for you. You must know that tradition doesn't really say what you're saying tradition says. And yet, he goes right on with the myth. Jim Kugel, in his book, How to Read the Bible, also quotes tradition as saying that King David wrote the Psalms, but of course we see with our own eyes that that is not true. Christine Hayes at Yale, also a tremendous scholar, I love her work, she also takes for granted that the traditional view is King David wrote the Psalms, and scholarship would say that is not correct. But all three, and again, these are very prominent and very good scholars who know a lot of things, are making the same mistake that Malbim was railing against in the 19th century, which is tradition doesn't say this. Right? Yes, many people in popular belief did think so. That's what they're criticizing. But our classical sources, and again, well-known sources, these are well-known commentators and well-known Talmudic passages that are knowable. It's not that I'm drawing from some obscure stuff that nobody's ever seen before because I dug it up in somebody's attic. Okay, that would be another story. But it's amazing that this view continues. And when I teach at Yeshiva University, I continue to have to disabuse many of my students. You know, they come into Psalms. Did King David really write all the Psalms? They're they're still being taught that in schools, at least many schools. And I'm like, well, let's talk about it when we get to this. You know, I don't start with authorship with them. But we get to authorship mid-course. And I'm like, okay, here are just the classical sources. Here's what they say. It's not just that your eyes see this in the text. It's that the rabbis saw that same stuff with their eyes, and therefore they interpreted with a wide range of opinions. So to summarize all of these things, tradition does insist that the Psalms are inspired and that they have eternal value, and that's why we continue to read them and pray them and love them. They're definitely prayers and not prophecies. Rav Sadigon's polemical motives notwithstanding, the fact is that tradition understands correctly that they are prayers, it does not matter in the least who wrote them from a traditional point of view. What matters is that they transform us religiously and build our relationship with God. When we recite the Psalms, it doesn't matter if it's David or Asaph or the sons of Korah or Ezra, people in the time of the men of the great assembly. What matters to us is how Psalms touch our souls and how we are able to connect to God through these absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful and inspiring Psalms. Next week, what we're going to do is have one shiur. It's going to be the last one on Psalms. Again, you could talk about Psalms for, for years. There, there's 150. Even if you just do one per night, well, that's 150 nights. You could do a lot of stuff. And if it's a once-a-week course, think about that for a minute. Ooh, that's like four years because it's not really 52 weeks in a course. There's summer vacation and other breaks and all that stuff. It would probably be a four-year course if we did one psalm a night on a weekly basis. But that all being said, next week what we're going to talk about is how Psalms 
deliberately turn on themselves and then transform themselves in their efforts to transform us. That will be our project next week, and I look forward to doing that. So see you then. And that